Deep in the dark, cold nights of December, in the year 1614, a woman died in her cell in the Kolomna Kremlin in Kolomna, Russia. Maybe some dark figure had come along in the shadows and strangled her. Maybe the guards had poisoned her food. Or maybe she had done the deed herself, unwilling to let herself die at the hands of the new Russian Tsar. However it happened, the woman died, and she, like her three husbands and her only child, was carted away to be thrown in some forgotten grave. Over time, her legend would grow, the curse she uttered in her dying days becoming the destruction of a dynasty. Marinka the Witch, the people would call her. She who had once been the Tsarista Marina, wife to two pretenders, mother of a usurper. But before all that, she was Marina Nishek. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, I'm Alana and this is Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the Queen of Lies. Marina Nishek was born as Marina Nishchovna to Yadviga Tarwo and Yerza Nishek in 1588 in Lanchki, Muravani. She was one of several children, approximately four brothers and three sisters, and was likely the second or third oldest of the Nishek children. Her father Yerza was a mover and shaker in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, starting his rise as a court officer in 1574 and moving up in rank until he became voivode of Sandomir's soon after Marina's birth. Voivode roughly means military leader, but one could have that title and be something like a governor or even a prince. Yerza was, to put it bluntly, a meddler, who was highly placed, had his fingers in many pies, and his ears at many doors. This was likely helped by one of his courtly jobs, which was to provide courtesans for the entertainment of the nobles. The court in which Yerza worked was that of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or as it was formerly known, the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. It consisted of the two countries joined together by a common ruler, at the time of Marina's birth in 1588, it spanned a territory of 315,000 square miles. She grew up as a proper Catholic girl, likely fairly well-educated for a woman of her time, the daughter of a powerful and ambitious man, in a time in her country's history that was built for the machinations of powerful and ambitious men, the golden age of the Commonwealth. The church was reforming, the economy was changing, and the nobles were electing a new king. This new monarch was named Sigismund Vasa, or Sigismund III, elected to the crown in 1587. Sigismund was the son and grandson of two kings, and was a bit of a despot, a ruthless Catholic intent on expanding the reach of his religion, his reign, and his region. He joined the countries of Sweden and Poland in 1592, only for his absolutism to drive the Swedes to independence in 1599. His attempts to create an absolute hereditary monarchy launched a rebellion in 1606 that had to be brutally put down by the king's soldiers. Sigismund wanted power, and he wasn't afraid to meddle in the affairs of other countries to get it. As the century turned, so too did his eyes, to nearby Russia, which was at the time undergoing its own cataclysmic changes, ones that would come to be known as the Time of Troubles. But to explain the troubles, we have to go backwards and north to a little town in Russia named Uglik, 1591, where the little brother of the recently crowned Fyodor I was living in exile with his mother. Dmitry Ivanovich was eight years old and the youngest son of Ivan IV, known as Ivan the Terrible. On the 15th of May, 
Someone from the house came upon a little body laying in the yard in front of the house the Tsarevich was staying in. Cries erupted around the property. The prince was dead. Had he been killed? That was certainly the conclusion reached by Dmitri's mother, Maria Nagaya. Tsar Fyodor was feeble-minded, sick, and under the control of his advisor Boris Godunov. Fyodor was not likely to live long, and perhaps Dmitri's death was Godunov's way of clearing his path to the throne. Some people, however, said Godunov would have no reason to kill a boy that would never become Tsar anyway, Dmitri being the son of an uncanonical marriage. And the initial report alleged that Dmitri died in an accident, a knife game gone horribly wrong. Whatever the case, Tsarevich Dmitri was buried in Uglik, a little tragedy lost in the hard times Russia was suffering through. The problem with dying and being buried in exile is that it leaves a lot of wiggle room for people who know how to take advantage of it. Like a good horror movie trope today, if you can't see the body, the villain could still be around. In 1591, the Polish nobility didn't know the opportunity they had on their hands, but things were about to change. Fast forward seven years to 1598. Fyodor I, last of the Rurikid dynasty, was dead. His loyal advisor, Boris Godunov, had taken the throne. Though he saw initial success, he did not stay popular for long. In the third year of his reign, famine broke out across Russia. It would last for two years and kill two million Russians, which was, at the time, a third of their population. Citizens flocked to the city where they might receive aid, leaving the countryside to be ravaged by sickness, starvation, roving gangs, and Cossacks. When Godunov died in 1605, he was probably scarcely missed, but the only thing that came from his death was more trouble. The Tsar was dead. The Rurikid dynasty was dead. What were the Russians to do? Except... It all went back to 1591, in that house in Uglik, that night that no one was sure what happened. Could they be certain that it had been Dmitri who had died? Or had power-mad, ambitious Godunov and his assassins somehow gotten it wrong? Dmitri Ivanovich enters, or, if you were a Polish nobleman, re-enters history around 1600, meeting high-placed officials and noblemen from Moscow. He apparently left enough of an impression to frighten Godunov, who chased him out of Russia and into Ostro, a city in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. There, Dmitri told a story to the powerful families of Poland. His mother had anticipated the assassination and secreted him away to various Russian monasteries. The body they had found in 1591 was a stranger, a nobody. When his caretaker had died, he had fled to Poland, seeking employment there as a teacher. He was the real Dmitri Ivanovich, rightful heir to the Russian throne. To be fair to some of these people, especially if they were those inclined to love a bit of intrigue, Dmitri was well-educated, conducted himself like an aristocrat, had a very royal carriage and confidence, and bore a passing resemblance to the Tsarevich and Ivan the Terrible, his supposed father. However, some claimed that the reason for this education and manner was because, yes, Dmitri was the son of a ruler, but not the Russian one. He was an illegitimate son of Stephen Batory, former king of Poland. According to Boris Godunov, this false Dmitri was nobody more than a vagabond monk named Grigory Otrepiev. The brothers Vishnevsky, influential Polish Ruthenian princes Adam and Mikhail, backed Dmitri's version of events, and along with several of their powerful friends, brought Dmitri to the king, Sigismund III, in 1604. Old Siggy couldn't ignore this prime opportunity to meddle in Russian affairs, especially if this could benefit him, 
but he was crafty enough not to throw his military support officially behind a long shot. Dmitri would have to drum up an army some other way. One way he did this was publicly converting to Roman Catholicism to make him more appealing to the Polish people and the powerful Jesuits who resided in the Commonwealth's court. Another way was through marriage. Marina Nieszek re-enters our story in 1604, in the court of Sigismund Vasa III. She was 16 years old, reportedly very pretty and energetic, and relatively well-educated in the arts. Looking back, some would say that she and Dmitri would fall in love. Modeste Mussorgsky's fictional drama Boris Godunov would say that Marina was compelled to seduce Dmitri by a Jesuit priest. The truth is most likely closest to the simplest explanation, as it often is. Yerza Nishek, Marina's powerful meddler of a father, saw two young adults, one who needed power and one who could give him power in return, who got along well and encouraged a match. When Dimitri came to him to ask for Marina's hand, Yerza accepted easily, on a few conditions. The Nishek family would claim the rights to Pleskov, Novgorod, Smolensk, and Novorod Seversky when Dimitri became Tsar. In return, Dimitri got Marina. Undoubtedly, her last name was just as, if not more so, important than the woman herself. Engagement secured, Dmitri took himself and a force of 3,500 soldiers to invade Russia. A country which was, if you remember, just pulling itself out of a famine, led by an unpopular leader. In 1609, Poland and Russia would clash in the Polish-Muscovite War. Its first volleys, however, were fired there in 1604, as Dmitri and his men swept across the countryside, picking up support from Cossacks and civilians as they went. Which brings us back to 1605. Boris Godunov succumbed to his illness on April 13th, and the Russian throne was once again up for grabs. His troops soon joined Dmitri's cause, and he marched on Moscow. The boyars in the palace overthrew Godunov's son, Fyodor II, in June, and crowned Dmitri as Tsar on the 21st of July. While Dmitri consolidated his power, in Poland his blushing bride began to prepare for her own ascension. Marina was married to Dmitri by proxy in November of 1605 at the Monte Lupi Palace, located in what is now Krakow, Poland. In the audience, amongst the hundreds of high-ranking nobles, was the king himself, Sigismund. From that time on, Marina could style herself as the Tsarista of all Russia, but she wouldn't enter the country itself until May of 1606. Marina arrived to Moscow in a grand parade, accompanied by her father and 4,000 Poles. In her grand Polish wedding dress, she married Dmitri and was presented with the Rurikid crown in the Cathedral of the Dormition in Moscow on the 8th of May. The jubilation was poisoned from the start. Rumors swirled in the capital that Marina had chosen not to convert to Russian Orthodoxy, as was expected of her upon her marriage. Why had she not done this? Well, for the same reasons that Dmitri did not seem to respect religion, the church, or tradition. For the same reason Dmitri's inner circle was filled with foreigners. Because Dmitri was obviously attempting to sell out not only the Orthodox Church to the Catholic, but the whole of Russia to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Russian historian Avrami Politsyn even reported that he had heard the Tsar plan to lock the gates of Moscow and kill everyone within. That rumor, and likely many of the others, was spread by Prince Vasily Shuisky, the head of the boyars, and it ran rampant in the Russian nobility. They had become displeased with Dmitri's rule. 
and Marina's continuing Catholicism was one of the final sparks to a fire that had been building for a while. Less than ten days after Marina had married her husband for the second time, on the morning of May the 17th, a small force of Russian boyars stormed the Kremlin, intent on deposing their false czar. Dmitri tried to escape by jumping out of a window, but he broke his leg in the fall. He was set upon by the boyars, who killed him and left his body to the mercy of the crowds of Moscow. They left him on display, naked but for a jester's mask they placed on his stomach, before the body was removed and cremated. The pretender's ashes were supposedly loaded into a cannon, which was then shot towards Poland. The Tsar, and Poland's ambitions for Russia, were dead, as Vasily Shuisky ascended to the throne. It was over. Except. The thing was, cremation might not have been the way to go. Always leave behind a body. Dmitri's supporters, those who lived, claimed that the Tsar had escaped his fate and would return someday soon. In the meantime, they pushed back against Shuisky's rule, and a great civil war broke out across Russia. Marina and her father were imprisoned for nearly two years. Eventually, she renounced her crown to save her life and was released and sent back to Poland in July of 1608. Yerzo was exiled to a small village in Russia. Not to critique a dead man, but it probably would have been smarter for Tsar Vasily to have him killed and Marina forever imprisoned. Yerza had not given up on his dreams of having a king for a son-in-law, and Marina, now 20, was more than willing to help. And luckily for both of them, opportunity was waiting just outside the prison's doorstep. In the future, Marina's storied ambition would become the defining trait of a woman whose character and personality is largely lost to history. Alexander Pushkin would write of her, in regards to the part he wrote for Marina in his opera Boris Godunov, She had only one passion, and that was ambition, but with such a degree of energy, or fury, that it is difficult to imagine. I think that if that was true of Marina, nowhere was it more evident than in the events of 1608. On July 26, 1607, a man appeared in Starodov, Russia. He was likely the son of a priest, which explained his good education and familiarity with religious practices. He first attempted to impersonate the Russian boyar Nagoy, but when he was captured and tortured, confessed himself to actually be Dmitry Ivanovich, having escaped his death for the second time. As in 1604, many flocked to this Dmitry's cause, including the Nisheks. In Tushino, just north of Moscow, Marina, the former Tsarista of all Russia, met Dmitry there and promptly claimed this man to be her husband, miraculously returned to her. This was not, in fact, her husband. This was not Dmitry, nor was this the only man claiming to be him at the time. But with Marina's support, this was a man who could become Tsar, and that was all that mattered. With the recognition of the Nisheks, many of the Poles who had supported Dmitry I gave their support to Dmitry II, and he marched on Russia with 7,500 men in 1608. He made great progress at first, capturing several cities and gaining several allies, including the Cossacks. It may have been in those long months at war that Tsarista Marina first met the Cossack leader Ivan Zarutsky, but that is a story yet to be told. For now, Tsars Vasily and Dmitri were deadlocked in a civil war, and Swedish intervention on Vasily's behalf had prompted a response from Poland. Sigismund III marched on the fortress of Smolensk in 1609. By July of 1610, Tsar Vasily had been deposed and forced into monkhood by the Polish forces and Russian nobles, who quickly took control of the capital. 
The path, therefore, was clear for Tsar Dmitri, yes? Not so much. Many of Dmitri's Polish supporters had abandoned him upon the King of Poland's arrival in the country. Depleted of men, arms, and likely money, Dmitri and the now-pregnant Marina had no choice but to flee to Shino and set up the royal court in Kostroma. In the meantime, Russian boyars were trying to place Sigismund's son, Vladislav, on the throne, perhaps to appease the king. But they did not fully understand the scope of Sigismund's need for power. He was no years a Nishek, content to live vicariously through his offspring. Sigismund wanted his power to be absolute. He and his army marched. While the king of the Commonwealth began to impose military rule over Russia, Dmitri and Marina hid in their little court in Kostroma. Dmitri tried one more attack, unsuccessfully, on Moscow. Any further efforts were stopped on the night of December the 11th, 1610, when the second false Dmitri was murdered by a vengeful prince while drunk. Marina was a widow, for the first time, or once again, depending on who you asked, and Poland had just lost the one thing that would have prevented a unified Russia from rising against them. Chaos exploded across the country as Russians began to fight to oust the Polish invaders from their lands and seats of power. Marina was most likely oblivious of this. Upon her husband's death, she was nearly eight months pregnant. On January 5th, 1611, she gave birth to her first and only child, a son she named Ivan. Others named the child the Little Rogue, or the Rebel's Son. The loss of Dmitri should have been the death of a dream, but Ivan's birth meant hope for a brighter future. After all, as Dmitri's son, he was heir to the throne. But Marina was stranded in a rapidly devolving military camp with an infant at her hip and no one to speak for a pretenderous queen. No one except for one man. Cossack leader Ivan Zarutsky had supported the campaign of Ivan Bolotnikov, who had attempted to take the throne from Vasily Shuisky in 1606, and for this was beheaded in 1607. With Bolotnikov dead, Zarutsky offered his services to Dmitri II, helping him win many of his battles and earning himself a title. By 1611, another of his would-be czars was dead. So this time, Zarutsky turned to a czarista. He married Marina in 1611. For her part, Marina gained protection and an army that would support her son's claim. Another indication of Marina's blind ambition, perhaps, but also, no doubt, the actions of a woman who was very afraid. If she'd had a daughter, that might have been the end of it, but her child was a boy, the son of a man who had been widely acknowledged as czar at one point. To Marina, it would have likely seemed they would never be safe. Everything seemed like it might work out at first. Zarutsky joined the ranks of the First People's Volunteer Army, fighting under the command of Prokopi Lyapunov. Lyapunov's army helped oust the Polish invaders from Moscow and set up the interim government. But he made the fatal mistake of going back on his promises of freedom and salary to the Cossacks, and Zarutsky assassinated him on August 1, 1611, assuming control of the army for a brief period of time. However, with both the Poles and Lyapunov gone, the freed people of Russia had little reason to stay in the army and abandoned Zarutsky in droves. Some of them went to the popular Dmitry Pozharsky, leader of the Second People's Volunteer Army, who urged people to fight for a united Russia. That meant not supporting Marina or her son. To do so would only invite more division and Polish intervention in Russia. And the Russians were tired of Polish intervention and Polish rule. There were more weak overtures at putting the sons of foreign kings on the throne, but what was truly wanted, needed at this point, was a Russian-born czar, 
Zarutsky attempted his tried-and-true method of assassination on Pizarski, trying to stop the momentum building behind the election of another ruler, but it failed, and the family was forced to flee to the city of Astrakhan. In the meantime, the Zimsky Sobor, or Assembly of the Land, met in Moscow and elected Mikhail Romanov to the throne on February 7, 1613. The 300-year reign of the Romanovs began on February 21st, when the new Tsar was found at the Ipatiev Monastery near Kostroma and informed of his new role. Mikhail at 17 was a relatively placid, even gentle boy, but even he would not stand for threats against his reign. One of his first orders of business was hunting down a rogue Tsarista and her little usurper, hiding somewhere in Astrakhan. Marina Nishek had been raised noble, safe, privileged, educated, respected, never wanting for anything. Loved by her family, prized by her father, and for a brief, bright moment, cherished by an entire nation. Now she scurried from one hiding place to another, her two-year-old son on her back, praying for a miracle or rescue or acknowledgement of any kind. It would not come. In 1614, prompted by the election of a new czar and the end of the Troubles, the citizens of Astrakhan chased Zarutsky and Marina out of the city and into the Ural steppes. They ran into the snowy mountains and to the Cossacks who lived there, no doubt hoping to gain support, but there was none to be found. The Cossacks were largely responsible for putting Mikhail Romanov on the throne, after all. In May, near the Yark River, they were chased down by Cossacks and captured. They were held for one month and then taken to the Tsar. Marina was separated from her son and husband and dragged to the Kolomna Kremlin, where she could only sit and wait for news. The first cut was deep, but expected. Zarutsky had been executed in Moscow. But what of her son? Her little Ivan? Marina waited and waited. She probably knew what was coming, but she waited. And then, the killing blow. Ivan Dmitrievich had been publicly hanged on the 16th of July, 1614. He was three years old. One witness said that Ivan's little body didn't weigh enough to break his neck when he fell. He died a slow, painful death of strangulation. One can only hope that bit of news didn't reach Marina. But the fact that the Romanovs left the body hanging for months at the Serpokov Gate in Moscow likely did. Five months later, the Russian ambassador would present himself to the court of the Polish king to tell his audience that Marina Nishek was dead, wasted away of a broken heart. Amongst the nobles, however, the rumors swirled. Marina had committed suicide. Marina had been strangled, poisoned, assassinated. The intrigue was delicious, but what did it really matter in the end? Marina had died on December 24, 1614. She was 26. Marina Nishek fascinates people. Why did she keep trying a course that from the outside seemed doomed from the start? Why persist in the lies even when the path grew dangerous? Was she controlled by her scheming father, Yerza Nishek? Was she a pawn to her three husbands? Or did brave, confident Marina see her chance for power at 16 and seized it with both hands, with the promise that nothing but death would rip it from her fingers? Certainly, history is not charitable to Marina. She is the imposter, the seducer, the usurper. 
but there is something about the sheer force of her will that captivates people still. Marina would do anything for power, suffer ridicule and poverty and warfare to secure her place, and that of her sons, eventually. What kind of person must she have been? Alexander Pushkin only ever wrote one scene for the role of Marina Nishek in his opera Boris Godunov, but from then on, she consumed him. I will return to her if God lets me live long enough. She upsets me like a violent emotion, he wrote of her. And then, quote, she is horribly Polish. There is another reason why people remember Marina. Another rumor that spread in 1614 that went a bit more ignored than the stories of her death. A bit of Russian superstition, a piece of silly gossip, that said Marina had cursed the Romanovs. There are two versions of the promise Marina uttered upon hearing the news of the death of her only son. With the blood of an innocent child did your reign begin, and so shall it end, was one. Another, more chilling, said that she cursed the Romanov family to die at the place they had begun, under the name of Ipatiev. Mikhail certainly paid it no mind, but his grandson Peter, the only one of his siblings that had lived to adulthood, was a bit more leery. There is a legend that a palm reader told Peter I of a little hanged boy that stalked his every step. The curse probably passed as a creepy, almost funny little story from Romanov generation to generation, right up until 1918. 304 years after Marinka the witch had said the words, the Romanov royal family, including 12-year-old Tsarevich Alexei, was shot to death in the basement of a building in Yekaterinburg. The building was called the Ipatiev House. <laughs> 